Let me read by way of review and to set the theme, Hebrews 3, 7 through 9. Hebrews 3, 7 through 9. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Now, we'll soon go forward into Numbers 14 where we were, but notice it says, as the Holy Spirit says. What I want to reiterate and emphasize this morning is the truth that the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. This is essential to know. Here, Psalm 95 is cited by the author of Hebrews, and the Holy Spirit gave us the Word and speaks to us present tense. The Holy Spirit says, and then the Word of God is cited. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word that your Holy Spirit comes to us and convicts us of sin, convinces us of the truth about your son, gives us many promises, and calls us to faith and obedience. May we be a people, dear Lord, who trust you and believes you rather than like those who test you. May we heed the warning and live lives that would be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this sort of sets the theme. So this is a little bit of review. The Holy Spirit says, this truth is salient, it's essential, and it's central that the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. I have material with me from Martin Luther and then Dietrich Bonhoeffer, or at least a biography of him, and shows the price that people paid for standing up for this truth. In the case of the confessing Christians during the Third Reich, they claimed the truth of the gospel of Christ, and the Holy Spirit does come to us through the word. The German Christians were an arm of Hitler. Hitler took over the German church, demanded obedience to himself. The church youth became the Hitler youth. We had a little discussion here earlier about how wicked America is, and I said, we haven't even got close to how bad it can be. Somebody gave me this book, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and about halfway through it's a thick book. But seeing how he stood up against Hitler and then ultimately paid for it with his life, we don't know the future, but I'll tell you this. We must stand on the truth that the Holy Spirit says and then cite the word of God. Okay? And we have to do that even in the context of the church. The two books that I wrote are about major movements in American Christianity that refuse 
to say this and refuse to stand for the truth of Scripture. And when we will not listen to what the Holy Spirit says, or we change it, saying the Holy Spirit comes to us through the church, then we've lost everything. I brought along with me today a document of the writings of Luther that are amazingly accurate on this issue. The Roman Catholic Church said that they gave us the scripture. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the church. And whatever they say from their authorities beyond scripture is supposedly binding on Christians. Luther rejected that. I'll I'll show you that later. So the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 as the Holy Spirit speaking to us. If you hear his voice... We hear his voice when we hear and understand the internal call of the gospel, that when the gospel's preached, we know that it's the truth and that Jesus Christ is indeed God from all eternity, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He walked this earth fully human and fully God, who predicted his own resurrection from the dead, who was raised bodily from the dead on the third day, as the scriptures say, and bodily ascended into heaven, where he ever lives to make intercession for us, from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we better be right with him. He's coming again. The mockers will come with their mocking, as it says in Second Peter 3, saying, where is the promise of his coming? You stupid Christians, you've spent centuries talking about Christ is going to come in judgment. Nothing like that's ever happened. You better listen to the voices of these modern Christians. In the case of Hitler, the German Christians. And they're telling us things that aren't what the scriptures say. So there was where we were. Now let's get back to, I did verses 1 through 3. Did anybody write notes can tell me exactly what slide I was on? Since last week, I wrote a whole sermon. I studied this and that. Do you know, Christy? All right, there we go. That's where we were. And I think I quoted at least one scholar there. Maybe I'll quote the second one and we'll move on. No, I think I, I did that too. Let's just talk about remembering what God did and what God said. We come to church every Sunday, and I'm excited to do that. I was talking to someone before Sunday school because I've had more bouts with health problems. You probably saw prairie quest. And if I can get here on Sunday and be able to teach the Word of God, I'm not asking for much more out of life. So here I am, and I believe that it's essential that every one of us remember what God has done for us. Remembering is a key thing. If you want to do your own search through a computer Bible, look up remember, or they didn't remember, or they forgot, and remembrance. Just look up those words 
and find all of them, and you'll see how important it is. And so here, they're not remembering, verses 3 and 4 of number 14, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader, return to Egypt. So we covered this last week. Question God's purposes. Question his character. Question God's motives. Wanting in unbelief to go back to the way it was before God saved them from Egyptian bondage. I'll tell you, dear friends, we need to remember how bad it was. Not to dwell on it, but to thank God he got us out. Wouldn't it be a horrible thought to think about going back to the way it was before you met Christ? Do you even remember your mind being filled with darkness? Without God? Without hope in the world? As Paul says in Ephesians, aliens to the promises, strangers to the covenants, without God, without hope. But God, being rich in mercy, with the love wherewith he loved us, intervened and brought light and truth and mercy and grace and forgiveness of sins into our lives. And it's the duty of every Christian pastor and teacher to remind the church what God did and encourage them to believe his promises. Dear saints, remember what he did for you in Christ and believe his promises. Deuteronomy 7.18. Did we do this one before? Did anybody jot it down? All right, new material. Deuteronomy 7.18. I'm just going to give you a little taste of what you find in the Bible about this. I found pages of stuff. Deuteronomy 7.18. Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon. He says, you shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. Caleb remembered. Remember this whole thing in Numbers 14 was based on what happened in Numbers 13. The spies went in, and other than Caleb and Joshua, they came back and said, no, they're too great. They're going to kill us. It's going to be awful. We can't go in there. But Moses told them, Remember what the Lord did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. The Passover was instituted so that it would be impossible for them to forget if they kept the Passover. Remember, there's a command. Judges 8.34, if you want to jot that down, Judges 8.34. So Moses preached to them and told them to remember. 8.34. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord, their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. What an indictment. Did not 
remember. How could you forget? So much for having itching ears. Tell us something new. What is the latest theory from the church growth experts? People don't want to hear about Christ. They want to solve their problems. So they don't remember what God did. Psalm 78, 42. These are just examples of all the many verses you can find in the Bible. Psalm 78, 42. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary. They did not remember. Application. If you and I forget what God did for us in Christ, we are in danger of testing God and falling into apostasy. We're not any different than anybody else. So we need to remember what God did. Let's go to verse 5, Numbers 14, 5 through 7a. So here are the leaders, Moses and Aaron. The people are complaining about God, not believing his promises, not remembering what he did, wanting to go back to bondage. So here's what happened. Here's godly leadership. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, Now, here Joshua, we find out, was also faithful like Caleb. Why did people in the Bible tear their clothes? What did that mean? Some horrible thing happened, and this was a form of lament. It was an action that showed an internal attitude. This is so bad, I can't stand it. it tore their clothes. Sometimes they threw ashes in the air, or dumped ashes over their head, put on sackcloth, which would be ruffled burlap, and sat there, and if somebody saw somebody with torn robe and ashes, they thought, oh, something bad happened. This is really bad. What happened? So Joshua and Caleb are mourning because of the sin of the sons of Israel. And so the righteous leadership of Israel took action. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes, and then they spoke out. Let me quote Dr. Cole from the New American Commentary. Quote, the righteous leadership of the nation responded in exemplary fashion. The prophetic and priestly leaders, Moses and Aaron, fell face down upon the ground in humble submission before God, in immersible propitiation before the people. Then in concerted response to their leader's self-humiliation, the two faithful scouts, Joshua 
and Caleb ripped open their cloaks in an act of great remorse and contrition. And then exhorted the people to focus on the benevolence of God and provision of the promised land and to abandon this evil notion of rebellion and jettison their fears of the people of the land. Unquote. Dr. Cole, New American Camp Commentary. My comment is this. True leaders lament the unbelief of the people because they see and know where it will lead. The people whose hearts have departed from God lament God's own purposes. See, my friends, we can't stand by and watch a church go apostate without taking action. We're going to stand on these two principles to remember what God did and proclaim and believe his promises. I can tell you that that's the very reason Gospel of Grace Fellowship exists. Because Eric, God bless you, Eric, took a stand. This was the issue, wasn't it? Go ahead and give him the mic. Yeah, Bob had preached a sermon about standing on the promises of God in Acts. And uh, there was an elder meeting at the former congregation where he was called on the carpet saying that that was not a sufficient application. And yet he's just showed you time and time again where remembering the promises of God is absolutely essential to continue in our sanctified walk uh, in the Lord. And I gave a message, the last one I gave that really bothered the last group of elders was Isaiah 17, where the Lord says, you have forgotten the God of your salvation. Well, if you remember, there was nine letter writers who wrote a letter. And when I, by the way, when I gave that sermon, Isaiah 17, it was on communion Sunday. Well, when we have the Lord's Supper, what does the Lord say? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, I was told that that was not a fitting application. Instead, I should have focused on the election of 2012. Well, of course, pagan America voted for a pagan. And what they were doing is they were saying, we won't tolerate what the Holy Spirit has actually said in the scripture. What we want to do is you give us your word, man's word, and that'll be used to sanctify us. The same thing that they said to Bob. And Bob and I said... Exactly, two years later. Two years later, exactly. We don't want to hear what God did, and what he promised. That's right. So this is very apropos for us as a congregation. So we're not here to complain because it was God's providence. But I want to explain why Gospel of Grace Fellowship is standing firmly on this. What God did and what he promised. And when that would not be tolerated, it was time to go. So, Eric, I commend you for standing on that. And uh, we might say, why would people not want to hear what God did for us in Christ and why we can believe his promises? That's a mystery to me. But one thing we can do is prove that the Bible tells us these things. You could say that you might as well talk to Moses. See, Moses, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' sermon. One of my teachers said, 
You ought to be able to preach Deuteronomy. It was a sermon to start with. <laughs> if you can't preach Deuteronomy, there's something wrong with you. And I did preach Deuteronomy, but years ago. Now, dear ones, was Moses wasting his breath when he kept telling them to remember what God did? And it doesn't mean inability to recall. You could take any one of them. They went through the Red Sea and say, was there some kind of an event where you went through this Red Sea? And did you actually see manna every day? Were you able to see the pillar of fire at night? When you were at Sinai, did you actually hear the voice of God thunder? Were you the ones that said, don't talk to us, we're going to die, that let Moses talk to us? And now, these very same people are saying, no, we don't want Moses. We're going to elect a new leader. And we don't think it was so bad. We want to go back to Egypt. Did they literally forget? Well, no. Had they literally come to an inability to recall, they wouldn't even know where to, oh, where would we go back to? I don't know where we were. (laughs) They obviously remembered Egypt or they wouldn't want to go back to it. And all of a sudden, the memory starts changing. You know, that food was pretty good. We had more variety in our menu. When I was a young Christian in the 70s, and I was in my 20s, a popular singer was Keith Green. Anybody else remember Keith Green from those? All all us older people. And he had a song called, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. Eating leeks and onions by the Nile. Oh, we're dining out in style. (laughs) Oh, we like Egypt. It had a bigger menu. (laughs) Ooh, this manna. He died at a young age in a plane crash down in Texas, but he had an amazing talent to take gospel truth and put it to music so so it goes my dear friends Eric's a lot younger and healthier than me but as long as I'm here and I know as long as Eric's here we're going to remind you of what God did we're going to point you to Christ in the gospel we're going to recite before your minds and hearts the promises of God and we're not going to apologize for preaching this way Because we're commanded to do so. Now, we can't think. And this is what Keith Green was so good about when he had his ministry of music. We can't think, oh, I'm not like these Israelites. I would never do that. I would never want to go back to Egypt. I would never deny Christ. Well, that's why Hebrews reiterates this. So does Psalm 95. Why do they keep going back to that? Why is Luke Acts like it is? Reminding us of what God did and pointing us to his future promises. All Christians throughout all ages are always going to need this. And we scoff at it and say it's not practical. Shows that our minds are thinking unbiblical thoughts. And uh, the whole church... And its leadership, as I saw in the church growth movement, decided the gospel promises were no longer practical. Yes? I was just going to 
thinking when you said that that the sin nature is so strong that it will it'll it'll keep trying to pull you back and uh yeah. without the holy spirit yeah you know what happens is you have problems and when you have problems the mind starts playing deceptive tricks i have so many problems these christians i have let me down and people i thought loved me forgot about me Whatever is going on, you know, there's our mind. <laughs> oh, when I was uh, before Christ, my drinking buddies, they were nice to me. And uh, I bet you they'd be nice now if I went back. It's a big lie. It was all a lie and a deception in utter darkness. I remember very well my mind being filled with nothing but darkness. And I was full of self. I was without God and without hope in the world. So the true leaders lament the unbelief and point people to God. Godly leadership, I have on this slide, believes God's promises. Numbers 14, 7 through 9. The land which we pass through to spy out, this is Joshua and Caleb, is an exceedingly good Land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us as a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them. and The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. We need to face the future with confidence. This morning we had a little discussion going when we were sitting up the tables. There's some people where I sat in the rocking chair. <laughs> I didn't set this uh, sound up. How evil America is and how bad it might get. Well, we don't know, do we? But here's the question for us. As Christians, do we trust America or do we trust the promises of God? It could very well be that in the future, it's going to be even more difficult to be a Christian in this country. We'll be even more ridiculed, more hated, and more despised because we don't go along with the thinking of the pagans. I can accept that. We need to believe the promises of God. God's not going to give us America as the land. He's given us a better promise, a heavenly one. If you read Hebrews 11, the patriarchs believed in a heavenly city. This world is not my home. Now, we're to pray for the civil governors and pray that as much as possible, we can live peaceably with all men. But the wicked world around us is making it more difficult to do that. But we can still pray and we can still preach the gospel. And we've got to keep doing that. I have some notes that I wrote here. Joshua and Caleb had seen the same land that the unbelieving spies saw. They all saw the same thing. 
but they took courage from the objective evidence by remembering God's mighty acts, that God would keep his promises. It was no more difficult to overcome the Canaanite tribes than it was to defeat Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. The Canaanite tribes were rather backwards compared to Pharaoh and his chariots. Egypt was more civilized and organized. It presented a far greater challenge than these tribes, yes. Uh, Bob, from a secular point of view, maybe unbelievers would struggle with the fact that maybe the Canaanites were there first and question a God that would... Why would God send them in there? Correct. Yeah. If you're an unbeliever, you might think the Canaanites had a better idea. You see, the attack... Good question, Peter. The attack today is against a Christian worldview. And like Nazi Germany that believed that they were... By the way, Martin Heidegger was the philosopher of the Nazi party. And he was called himself. He was postmodern. That's what we have today. Nazism was a return to nature. They believed in nature religion and postmodernity. All these same things that are on the table for America today. Why did they hate the Jews? Because the Jews were intractable. They believed in a transcendent God who had spoken and who gave commandments like the Ten Commandments. And he wrote on stone and he had moral commands that don't change. So you have to kill the Jews to get rid of that idea about God as far as God being transcendent. Now the Christians believed the same thing until they were taken over by the Nazis. And rather than being Christians, they became German Christians. And they too then were committed to the nature religion, imminence, God is close, rather than transcendence, God is sovereign. Like I said, I've been reading this biography of Bonhoeffer. And the alternative of the minority was called confessing Christians. They confessed Christ and the gospel that made them enemies to Hitler and the Third Reich. The gods of America today are the pagan deities of the nature religions. We're in the same situation. As you've heard me preach, and when I preach repentance, I believe we should tell people what we're calling them to turn from and whom we're telling them to turn to. So lately, to make it clear, I've said, turn from Mother Earth and turn to Father God. Because that's reminding us of transcendence. And pagans will be offended by that message. But some will hear the internal call of the gospel and repent. We're in the same situation. There's no transcendent moral law. We can see even the Supreme Court thinks that. We have the nature religion. And we can't stand 
these fundamentalist Christians who believe that God speaks once for all and we're accountable to his moral law and there will be future judgment. Same issue comes up again and again. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. That's what we're going to have to do. Do not rebel against God. Don't fear the people. I was going to quote Dr. Allen from the Expositor's Commentary. Be that as it may, the only voices of reason and faith that we hear in the text are those of Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. Their passion for truth in the midst of monumental error caused Moses and Aaron to fling themselves on the ground, prostrate before the enraged leaders of the people. In this posture, they symbolize their awareness of the anger of the Lord, excuse me, that the anger of the Lord was likely to burst out on the people in a moment, unquote. Any moment, God's wrath could fall. Now, Hebrews reminds them of when that happened. It did happen, didn't it? Remember the fire came one time, started on the outside of the camp, killing people? And uh, who was the guy who took a spear and thrust it through the fornicators? Phinehas. Phinehas took a spear because somebody had found a Canaanite woman and was committing immorality, and he took a spear and thrust it through the two of them, and the fire stopped. Phinehas. What's going to happen to us in America? People saying we need to be practical. Well, let me tell you practical. We're going to have to stand up for the gospel and for God's true moral law, no matter what it costs us. And we can't necessarily think the pagan culture around us is going to pat us on the back and thank us for doing so. That's not the way it is. But the truth is the truth. Now, what happens when you do stand up for truth? Well, here we go. (laughs) But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. All right, we can't tolerate these people talking about what God did and what his promises are. Let's kill them. Remember Paul wanting to do that with Stephen and the other Christians? They said, stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting, that's where Moses met with God, to all the sons of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. Now, this is a rhetorical question. You won't believe this. I wrote an article back in the 90s. This uh, Greg Boyd wrote a book claiming God doesn't know the future, promoting open theism. This is one of his proof texts. Well, see, God said, how long will he spare me? See, God doesn't know. That's what Boyd says. And so I said in my article, well, if God doesn't know, how did he think Moses would know? Like Moses is going to fill in the information God doesn't have? 
Well, obviously, this is rhetorical, and this is God lamenting how evil these people are. This is bad. How can they not remember the Exodus? How can they not remember God's graciousness and his love and his kindness? How can they not see the significance of the signs? When we get to further into Acts 5, I haven't forgot about Acts, we'll see how important these signs were to authenticate who speaks for God. So the people chose insurrection over faith in God and his promises. The people wanted to stone Jesus. The people stoned Stephen for telling them the truth. If you want objective reason, they had every objective reason to believe God's promises. The reason they don't enter is because of unbelief. Eric, could you look up Hebrews 3.19, and then I'm going to read from John 10. John 10, 27 through 33. You can turn with me if you want. John 10. Thank you, Lord, that I'm able to speak without coughing at the moment. John 10, 27. Here we go. Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. What does that mean? The mystics say they hear inner voices. Like, remember that book, Jesus Calling? I wrote a review of that. No, it's not Jesus Calling. It's familiar spirits. Speaking in God's name. When Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, what he means from the context is that they respond to the gospel invitation. And they go through the narrow gate. And they don't climb over the wall of the sheepfold. And they're not like the wolves, the Pharisees. So my sheep hear my voice means my sheep respond to the gospel in faith. And they hear to God's promises. 28. What happens when they hear his voice? I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's the promises of God. This proves right there. John 10, 28. That this means responding to the gospel. Hearing the internal call. Verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 31, John 10, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Remember when they wanted to stone Moses for telling them the truth? Now they want to stone Jesus for telling them the truth. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, made yourself out to be God. There it is. They understood Jesus' claims of deity. Hebrews 3.19, Eric. It says, so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Mm -hmm. The thing that will keep us from the promised land is unbelief. 
every one of us, me included, need to hear over and over again what God has done for us and what are his promises. Oh, yes. I'm telling you, my friends, I cling to those. It gets really dark when you get bad reports from doctors. Oh, it's really bad. It's all getting worse. And I think the promises of God are true. I'm either going to be here preaching the gospel or I'm going to be in heaven with Christ. There's the promises of God. Luann, do you want to bring the mic over there? So just kind of making probably an obvious parallel, but in the Old Testament, um, uh, despite all the signs, they wanted to stone Moses and and uh, Joshua, etc. And in the New Testament, Jesus, uh, the leaders said, you know, show us a sign. And he said, the only sign I'm going to give you is a sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. So as Christians today, if we go out and we talk about the resurrection, we can expect maybe not stoning, but severe persecution. Yeah, they, they hate it. So now I'm doing a summary of 12 through 16 to cut down on a number of PowerPoint slides. But in 12 through 16, God offers to start over with Moses. Remember the same thing happened on Sinai? All right, these people make it a golden calf. They won't listen. Why don't I take you, Moses, and create a totally different nation? But Moses said no. And he appealed to God based on the honor of God's name. The heathen will say, Yahweh brought them out but he wasn't able to bring them in. Dear God, take action to preserve the honor of your own name. I was reading that when I was in seminary and I was within six months of graduating. One thing that had to be done as a requirement was write an essay that covered all of the important doctrines of systematic theology from the perspective of an integrating integrative motif. Well, how do you do that? And they said, don't use the same ones everybody else uses, like the grace of God or something like that. Do something unique, because us readers are not wanting to see the same thing over and over. And I wrote an essay called Honoring God. And I went through all of the doctrines of systematic theology that show that God was acting to bring honor to his own name. And that what we are called to do is to honor God in all things. And I turned that in, and one of my readers, Dr. Brooks, committed me saying it was the best he'd seen. And I thank God for that. It's not, it was God's grace that I saw that, was able to do it. We published it. And CIC is still there. But God acts to bring honor to his own name. And so Moses was wise to remind God of that. You're going to be dishonored by the pagans if you don't bring us in. The Egyptians saw God's mighty acts and heard of them. The Canaans heard of God's mighty acts. And the pagans might falsely think God lacks the power to keep his promises. So Moses' intercession 
concerns the honor of God's name. Let him who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Dear Lord, help me bring honor to your name. Honoring God. I'm quoting Dr. Cole again from the New International Commentary on the Old Testament. From Noah and Abraham to Moses and Elijah, and finally and incomparably in Jesus, the story of his redemptive power has resonated through his word to challenge those whom he desires to call his own to faith and fulfillment, says Dr. Cole. But redemption often was prefaced by judgment. So from the cloud of the Lord's presence came the revelation that God intended to ravage the Israelite nation with plague and destruction and rebuild a new and greater kingdom through Moses. This potential of starting over through Moses had been raised by Yahweh when the people constructed the golden calf soon after the exodus. But that didn't happen because God's use of Moses in intercession intervened. God has spoken to us fully and finally in Christ. Now 17 through 19. Here's Moses, his intercession. But now I pray that the power of the Lord be great. Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Just as you also have forgiven this people, even from Egypt until now. Where did Moses learn that the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. Where did he learn about that? On Sinai. This statement echoes through the history of Israel. At crucial times in their history, righteous people stated this, basically citing Moses. If you want to, turn with me to Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This statement about the character and nature of God came directly from God himself. Even Jonah knew this was true. That's why he didn't want to preach in Nineveh. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children, on the grandchildren, to the third and fourth generations. Here's the same idea. This is what he learned from the voice of God on Sinai. Exodus 34 6 and 7. It says in the Bible that Moses was the most humble man in the world. Moses was a humble man 
who is more concerned about the honor of God's name than personal power and status. Oh, here's my opportunity. God's going to take me. And through me, we'll have a totally new nation. And I'll be the new Abraham. I will supersede the promises to the patriarchs. And I'll be done with all these annoying Israelites that make my life miserable. I'm going to start over. And Moses, being the most humble man, said, no, what's more important than me having my own people is the honor of God's name. Wow. In John chapter 1, these same things are said about Christ that were said here about Yahweh, full of loving kindness and truth. Numbers 14, 20 and 21. So the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. God will bring honor to his name. He will fill the entire earth with his glory. God will display his presence in the midst of his people. So he pardoned them. Now they did. The the generation that came out of Egypt, what happened to them? They died, didn't they? As one of my teachers in Bible college said, they had 40 years worth of funerals. Pastors are called upon to do funerals. Can you imagine how busy they were? Funeral after funeral after funeral. At least it's easy to dig in sand. To bury them. And their children would go in. But God's glory would be displayed. They will not be wiped out as a nation, but there will be consequences. Only Joshua and Caleb will enter with the younger generation. This is the passage I was alluding to earlier, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the promise to Abraham had to be fulfilled. So there had to be an exodus and there had to be an entrance into the land that God promised to Abraham. And in that land, eventually there was a David to whom promises were given that he would have a son who would sit on a throne. The greater son of David is Messiah. Amen? The son. One more slide. Numbers 14, 22 to 24. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test. There is the command not to do this. Don't test God. Put me to the test these ten times. And have not listened to my voice. Shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers. Nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered and his descendants 
will take possession of it. Unbelief kept them from entering the promised land. Caleb believed the promises of God. We're out of time. I do have some verses here. Here's one that Eric preached that got him into trouble. Maybe we'll end with that one. Isaiah 17.10. Now you know. That's the verse, right, Eric? He preached on it. And his application was found in 1 Corinthians 11. Do this in remembrance of me. Isaiah 17.10, as we close. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. They grafted in pagan ideas into their vineyard. That'd be like having Cherokee purple grafting in a beefsteak, right? That's my tomato growing friend there. Hey, Brian. (laughs) The point is, it'd be really stupid to do that. When you got the best, you don't graft in something foreign. We have the promises of God. My friends, are we going to believe? May we. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that we have these things before our eyes to remind us of what you did to remind us of your saving works, to remind us of your promises, and to show us that we shouldn't test you. Dear God, through our Lord Jesus, we pray that you bring honor to your own name by forgiving us and graciously working in our lives to bring us fully to your promises. And we look forward to being with you forever in heaven. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we finish this particular... Well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for your prayers. My voice got to the point where I could finish this. Uh, So we finish Numbers 14. Next time we'll be back in Acts 5 about signs that God did to validate who he speaks through.